Hello, everybody. Just a very quick one about Instagram. If you're on it, Meta, the parent company, is reducing the number of political posts visible to users on their feed. This is a real thing, not a hoax. So go to your Instagram profile, tap the three horizontal lines in the top right corner to open the settings tab, scroll down to what you see, click on content preferences, open political content, and turn on don't limit political content. That's an option. Otherwise, you won't see almost anything we post because we are deemed political. Please do that now or you won't even see the posts about our shows, our fun things. So if you want to see Guilty Feminist content and know when we're coming to a place near you, releasing a new podcast, do it now. I'm a feminist, but... I would snog a men's rights activist for four minutes if it meant I got to snog John Hamm for two. I'm a feminist, but when I go for my smear test and the nurse is getting all her medieval equipment ready, I quickly tuck my labia in. Every time. I am a feminist, but I play hard to get, even though I know it confuses consent and is as problematic as these boots I can barely walk in. I'm a feminist, but... um, If I'm holding a door open for someone and they don't say thank you, I kick them. I'm a feminist, but I spent more time picking uh, what underwear I needed to wear today than researching the panels because I was paranoid that you'd be able to see them through these white trousers. (laughs) And now you're looking and I'm still paranoid. (laughs) Stop looking. I'm a feminist, but I am looking at Yasmin Abdelmajid's pants and will be for the rest of the show. Are you ready to start the show? And welcome, welcome, welcome to the Guilty Feminist! Do you now think it's a cult? Yes. Everyone needs to put their phones on silent so it doesn't interfere with the recording. Because tonight we're recording everything that happens. That means if you cheer, like for example this. Absolutely brilliant. You'd be able to hear your cheer on The Guilty Feminist when you listen to it later. If you laughed like this. That's the laugh of a white man. No F 
effort. They don't make the same sort of effort. They don't need to. They don't need to. They're rewarded for less. Um, and that's what's just, huh? Yeah. It's the kind of, that's the kind of laughter we expect. What's your name, sir? Ricky. Ricky. Good. Well done. Are you a regular listener? That doesn't sound as enthusiastic as it could, Ricky. You force him to. Have you brought him here tonight for training? Oh, he bought you the ticket. Ah, oh. isn't that lovely when men use feminism to get laid? <laughs> Am I wrong, Ricky? Ricky's applauding. I'm not wrong. I'm not wrong. So tonight we're going to strap in for some serious feminism. We're all going to be right together. That's why we come here. We're all agreed we're right. There's no... And I need to be clear about this. There will be absolutely nobody on this stage for balance. I do not give a fuck about balance. The last four things I've been booked to do on radio or telly or podcasts have all had someone on for balance. And the last time I was booked with someone on for balance, it was such a horrendous experience that the producer of the radio show phoned me four days later and apologised. I think it took him four days to get the courage up to do it. That's how bad it was. And I said to him, at the time when he booked me and the other guy for balance, I said, okay, I'll tell you what it was about. It was about Kavanaugh. Yes, that's right. And they said, we need someone for balance. And this person for balance believes that Dr. Ford is making her testimony up. And I said, you don't need somebody for balance on the radio at breakfast saying that somebody who survived a sexual assault is making it up. Do you know why you don't need that? Do you know what you have for balance? The history of the fucking world. That's your balance. Look out the window. All the power structures. They are your balance. The Me Too movement is like a mouse on a seesaw with an elephant. It's making a lot of noise, but it's not doing a lot for the balance. You do not need a second elephant down the heavy end for balance. And if you are going to get a Trump supporter on, don't get him on a day when you're talking about rape, because that's what you're talking about with Kavanaugh. Get him on another day when you're talking about trade deals, because this is violence that you're talking about. And 10 years time, when you and I, who both know that Trump is a fascist, are living in a worse world, it will be because of this day and this decision of yours to book someone for balance. And the researcher said, well, I'll, I'll go and talk to my producer and see what he says. <laughs> they decided they still needed someone for balance. So today I say to you, look, all we are is lots and lots of mice running up to the light end of a seesaw. We're gonna try and get so many mice up there that we're elephant weight. That's all we can do. So if you ever see on television someone booked for balance, can you please hashtag mouse on seesaw with elephant, <laughs> hashtag stop booking for balance, hashtag balance is the history of the world. 
Hashtag, listen to this episode of The Guilty Feminist and you'll understand <laughs> all of these other hashtags. <laughs> now, the thing I want to talk to you tonight is, I'm from Australia. I know I don't sound especially Australian. Thank you. The, are you Australian too? Excellent, let's have a drink in the bar. Um, I know I don't sound especially Australian, but I read a lot of Enid Blyton as a child and I picked up the accent from the books. <laughs> I'm basically Muriel from Muriel's Wedding. <laughs> that is the very area I came from, Pauper Spit. It's true, it's a joke name, but it's based on two names in my town. And I came over here just essentially for a gap year and I ended up staying and going to university here. Um, and it was 1997, the year I went up to Oxford and I had my indefinite leave to remain and it was all very exciting. Now I am, I am an immigrant, but I am the kind of immigrant that UKIP like. I'm aware of that. I'm white. I read English at Oxford. I was a nanny. I'm basically Mary Poppins. <laughs> and like Mary Poppins, I have visa issues. Why do you think she comes in on an umbrella? Oh, that's... <laughs> like Mary Poppins, I am also an imaginative work by an Australian woman. <laughs> so I had an indefinite leave to remain. And I was in my first term at university and I lost my passport. So I had to get a new passport. I had to get a new indefinite leave to remain visa, which I thought would be simple, but it was not. There was nowhere you could phone. There was nowhere you could write to. All you could do was go to this office at five o'clock in the morning in Hackney and you had to queue all day and they said you may not be seen. You may have to come back again and queue from 5am tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow and frankly you may never be seen. And I thought, well, that's obviously impractical and I'm at university and I've got to go to all my lectures. <laughs> that's not what I was doing, but that's irrelevant. <laughs> I thought, this is ridiculous. I don't live in London. I can't do this. So I tried everything. I tried, I phoned everyone. I couldn't, nobody, nobody could help me. So eventually, I rang the office of the Right Honourable Jack Straw, who was at that point the Home Secretary. And I said, hello, is Jack there, please? <laughs> and the lady said... Um, who's this? And I said, well, I'm Deborah, and uh, I need this indefinitely to remain visa, and I voted Labour. I was a Commonwealth citizen, I was allowed to vote, and so I can't do this queuing from 5am with no promises thing, so could Jack, Mr Straw, help me? And she said, well, not really. I said, I just need a number for that part of the Home Office. And she said, well, that's the problem. We don't have a number for that part of the Home Office. We've actually lost them. This is true. I am making none of this up. I swear on John Hamm's life. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? That, that part of the Home Office just like moved and left no forwarding address. Imagine if an immigrant did that. And they, she said, well, yes, essentially, we just don't have a number for them anymore. They've moved. We don't know what's going on. And I said, are you serious? And she said, yes. So I thought, fine. So I hung up and I found a number for number 10 Downing Street. And I rang up and said, hello, I'd like to speak to Tony Blair. <laughs> this lady said, and who's this? And I said, my name's Deborah. I voted Labour. And <laughs> I'm the reason you are in number 10. And I think Mr Blair needs to know that, that Jack Straw has lost a part of the Home Office. <laughs> and also, it's the very part of the Home Office I need right now. And she laughed and said, let me put you on hold. And she came back after a few minutes and she went, all right phone this number and ask for Margaret. <laughs> True story. 
so I phoned the number, asked for Margaret. Margaret said, all right, I'm going to send you a letter. Then I want you to go to Paris for the weekend. <laughs> you can take the Eurostar, but there are more affordable options by coach. <laughs> when you come back in, you show your passport, you show this letter, and it will be stamped, and you will have your indefinite leave to remain visa back. So I got the letter, went to Paris for the weekend, lovely, it was spring, beautiful, and came back in, indefinitely to remain done. Because sometimes you need to go to the top. <laughs> then I lost my passport again. <laughs> it was Selinsky's fault. It was Tom Selinsky, the producer of this podcast's fault, in 2002. And... I don't know if you've noticed anything about the difference in the dates between 1997 and 2002, but one of them is before 9-11 and one of them is after. And everything had changed. There was no nice lady called Margaret. There was nobody giggling at number 10. It was all different. This time I was told it would cost me a thousand pounds to get my indefinite leave to remain visa. That I had to produce paperwork showing I had not left the country for any two year period since I had come. And worst of all, I had to go to Sheffield. <laughs> now, if you're listening from Sheffield, I, it's a lovely town. My sister-in-law lives there. Hello. And it's delightful. <laughs> so I got all my paperwork together and had landlords and university tutors and everybody. And I got on the train and I went up to Sheffield. The place I had to go, it was an industrial estate. It was like somewhere they'd take you on the wire to have you killed. <laughs> the security was like the security of a, an airport on a military base the day that all of the world's leaders, all of the royal family and the remaining Beatles were coming to visit. <laughs> One of the metal detector scanners detected its own metal. <laughs> Freaked out. So I went through this whole palaver, went and sat down. I had all my, you know, my briefcase full of bits. And this lady called me Ford and she said hello. And I said hello. And she was so nice. And she looked at all of my documents and she was like, well, here's the thing. While Lee's are lovely, it's just very difficult to prove that you haven't left the country for two years. I mean, I couldn't do it. I've lived here all my life and I am, in fact, British. There is nothing here that tells me that you haven't left the country for two years. I mean, you can rent a flat and you can leave, can't you? You can do a degree, but you can do it from somewhere else, can't you? You can sort of do everything now from somewhere else, can't you? And that's the thing. So I'm afraid I am going to have to deport you. And I was like, what? But I don't have... Yes, well, you're going to have to go back to Australia, but it'll be lovely weather there this time of year. I was like, but I don't have anything in Australia. I haven't lived there for years. I don't know what you're... All my life, my whole life is here. And she went, yes, well, I mean, that is the thing, isn't it? It is very, very difficult. But, I mean, there is nothing you can do about it because you cannot prove you haven't left somewhere. I'm so sorry about that. Now, somebody had told me before I'd left to put a copy of the Edinburgh Festival Fringe brochure in my bag because I was just about to do the Fringe. And I thought, that is a terrible idea. Because showing that I am in the Edinburgh Fringe brochure, about to a show at the Edinburgh Fringe, proves nothing. It is full of Australians on dodgy tourist visas <laughs> coming here to illegally work. If anything, it makes me look poor, shoddy. 
But I had nothing else, and she genuinely was going to deport me. So I pulled it out and said, well, I'm just about to do the Edinburgh Festival, and showed her my face in a quarter-page advert. And I said, if you deport me, I won't be able to do it. And she looked down, and she went, oh, you're a comedian. We haven't had a comedian before. We get lots of footballers, but we haven't had a comedian. We've had a pop star, not allowed to say who it was, Craig McLaughlin. But... But we haven't had a comedian. Mary, we've got a comedian. You see, we've got a comedian here. Come and have a look. We've got a comedian. Do you know who I love? I love that. Al Murray, pub landlord. We went out on a team outing. Didn't we, Mary? Mary, we went on a team outing to see Al Murray, pub landlord. I love that, Al Murray. Do you know that Al Murray, pub landlord? And I said, well, yeah, actually, do know Al Murray, pub landlord a bit. Do you know Al Murray, pub landlord? Yeah, yeah, quite, quite well. <laughs> I mean, not that well, to be honest. The man could barely pick me out of a police lineup. Yeah, really quite well. <laughs> Often have beers with him. Well, there's nothing more British than knowing Al Murray, pub landlord. <laughs> I don't see any reason why you can't stay. Stamped my fucking passport. (laughs) Now, I don't mean to make you feel bad, but what you've applauded there is white privilege. (laughs) Because it is up to their discretion. Nobody can prove They haven't gone away for two years. And tonight, that's one reason we want to talk very seriously about Windrush. Because I came from a place of privilege of my own free will. I came from Australia, where the economy was good, everything was fine. I came over here uninvited. Nobody asked me to. Nobody said, will you please come and help out? I hadn't had a family here. I hadn't built the kind of life here that some Windrush people have built. So tonight, we really want to talk about it. But I wanted to tell you that story just so you could see how very whimsical the system is and how much we have to fight for people who have been deported or in some case have ended up in Yarlswood when they are British. They've been here effectively all their lives. So I tell you this story to depress you, clearly. (laughs) No, because I want us all together to be the change. And we're going to explore ways that we can be the change. Because it's okay to come here and be right, but it's not enough to be right together. We've got to take some of this rightness out into the world and make a change. Do you know why? For balance. Thank you very much. producer of this podcast, who you know and love, Tom Selinski, has written a play with Robert Kahn called Brexit. It got rave reviews at the Edinburgh Festival and is soon to be at the King's Head Theatre. You can find details at kingsheadtheatre.com. Book now. It begins October 30th and runs to the 17th of November and features one of our favourite Guilty Feminist guests, Pippa Evans. See you there. Our first guest for tonight... We live in a bit of a strange world right now. I don't know if you've noticed. What's true? Like, genuinely, though, what is true? Can anyone shout something out that they know is true? I heard sexism, malaria, and Mr. Big from Sex the City. No. What was that? I heard MDMA. It's a good one. It's a good one. But I feel we need more. <laughs> Education cuts. Education cuts, yes. 
Climate change. Uh, climate change, yes. Although I was on the radio the other day with someone who said they didn't agree with climate change and didn't believe in it for balance. <laughs> True. If only that would make it go away. If only if we all believed hard enough that it wasn't true. But we're swimming in this mire, and the internet's done lots of wonderful things for us. It's brought us here together tonight, because without this podcast, obviously, I never would have been able to find you. But it's also made life very confusing, and it's also massively eroded investigative journalism and understanding which source is valid. We need to do something about this, because feminism, above all, needs truth. It needs leadership. It needs collective understanding about what we're doing because a movement can't change anything if we can't agree with what we're changing. We don't genuinely know what the facts are. And sometimes even we feminists are capable of sharing things on Facebook which we don't realise are dated 2006 and weren't accurate at the time. <laughs> so tonight, tonight... I would like to introduce to you someone who has been doing sterling work, important work in this area, and coincidentally is a woman. Is it a coincidence? No, it isn't. She's doing it well because she's a woman, because women are brilliant. Please put your hands together and make a wonderful, guilty feminist welcoming noises along with Guardian Live welcoming noises. That's right, because it's a Guardian Live event for the editor-in-chief of The Guardian, Catherine Viner! you've done some wonderful things. Very, over very recent times, you've broken Cambridge Analytica and you've broken Windrush. So without you, we wouldn't know about those things. And they're two of the biggest stories. I mean, at Cambridge Analytica Global, um, how the US election was rigged, how Brexit was affected. And Windrush, we're going to talk a lot more about later. How have you managed to do this in a world where there's so much misinformation? Like, what's your strategy? I think it's uh, about making it into a priority. So at The Guardian, it's a real priority that we find things out. We don't just report the news that's happened or what politicians have done that day. We try and hold them to account, try and find out the things that people are doing that they perhaps don't want known, that they want to keep hidden. And we see that as an important part of our sort of duty in a public interest journalism in civic society. So it's a priority. Why isn't everyone doing this? Because I feel like that's what newspapers are for, and I feel like newspapers have forgotten that, and now they think they're for reporting that Meghan Markle has closed a car door. That was a big achievement, though, wasn't I it? Mean, that was a big moment. In a way. I mean, you know, I think she just didn't know she wasn't meant to close the door because she's closed doors all her life because she's a person. And... <laughs> pretty sure that's what happened. But then other people came up with, on that very busy day on Twitter, video of Kate Middleton closing her own car door and saying, this is fake news. Young royals close their car doors. It's only the Queen and Prince Philip that don't close their car doors. And that was a whole 48-hour news cycle about who closes the door, who doesn't close the door, is the door still open? <laughs> Meanwhile, Trump had tweeted 10 things that could have got him impeached, but we were still very focused on the door. And I'm, 
So what I'm saying to you is, why has this noise come into our news? Is it because everybody's editing their own newspaper now in the form of social media? Because that's what I feel sometimes. I feel a deep responsibility to edit my own newspaper and go, which stories am I going to retweet today? Which ones am I going to go quote tweet? This one deserves a blog. Obviously, I never write one, but I feel it deserves one. Um, I could talk about this on the podcast. I could Instagram this. So I feel like I'm running. I mean, I don't want to in any way... <laughs> I don't want to cast a shadow over your achievement there, but I also feel I'm running a national newspaper that others look to. Um, do you think that's the reason that everything's got so noisy? I certainly think the digital revolution has challenged everything about journalism. And one of the main things it's challenged is the business model. So journalism for hundreds of years has been funded by advertising. But in the digital era, because a phone is so much smaller and the content on it is more ephemeral than in a solid newspaper that's big and in front of you and you're not moving, people charge much less for that advertising. You are competing with Google and Facebook, the giants who make billions from the advertising that used to come to news organizations. And in that context, what people tend to do is Meghan Markle's car door tragedy. Mm. Um, Triumph, I'd say. <laughs> Depends which way you look at it, don't I mean, it? it does. And that's an example of news. <laughs> How two different, you know, two different angles. Um, and so if people are just chasing sort of empty clickbait, mm. they think they'll get clicks for that and then they'll get advertising for those clicks. We've taken a different approach, although advertising is still very important to us. We had decided that, you know, because we think investigative journalism particularly in this moment where there are crises at every level of our lives, global, mm. national, local, and personal, that we've taken a different approach, which is to ask our readers to help fund us. I'm sure there'll be lots of Guardian contributors in the room. Yes, I'm yeah, just checking, just checking, couple, as a couple. Um, and, um, Some of them have lied there. Woo, <laughs> yeah, constantly, always, giving money to the Guardian. Um, so rather than a paywall, which some news organisations have done, and a paywall obviously kind of cuts you off from anyone who can't afford to pay, we say to our readers, would you like to help contribute, keep the garden going, keep us investigating, revealing the Windrush scandal, Cambridge Analytica, child abuse in football, tax evasion in Paradise Papers, and so on. We'll keep doing that, and you can help, you can be responsible for those investigations by contributing to the Guardian. And that's really shifted our business model in quite an interesting way. I think it's made it a really meaningful business model for journalism. So it's more of a Wikipedia model. So if you like this, keep it going. And people are putting in. Yes, it's been amazingly successful. Uh, just as an example, three years ago, we were losing £57 million a year. We have a lot of money in the bank, but obviously that's not a great situation to be in. Um, no. Last year... You know, I sometimes think my finances are disgraceful, <laughs> but that makes me feel no, so but much wait, better. But wait, that was three years ago. Um, last year, we lost £19 million, a big difference. And this year... We will be breaking even um, if it kills us. And I'm going to buy that dress off ASOS, I've decided, because that puts it all into perspective. Um, but it's not but just breaking even for the sake of it. No, I think it's breaking so, you know, even it's... and breaking Cambridge Analytica. <laughs> exactly. And that, it's that duo that's, that's really right. important. It means that we're able to do investigative journalism, which is really laborious, takes absolutely ages. Amelia Gentleman, who you're about to meet, spent seven months researching the Windrush scandal before we could get any politicians to care at all. And, you know, sometimes you investigate these stories for months and months and months, and then there's not much there. 
Mm. You know, it's very expensive, but it's absolutely important if we want to live in the kind of society that I think we all want to live in. So it's never been more important to fund, collectively fund, crowdfund, if you like, investigative journalism. And it's bizarre that we have to because we think of investigative journalism, I think, as Robert Redford, you know, off in a basement somewhere and following people around in a trench coat. These days it's it's lots of women, actually. I know. It's exciting. But but that's our sort of vision of it, I think. I don't think we ever thought we'd have to kickstarter it. But we do. We collectively have to decide who we're going to get behind. So I think... Basically, feminism can't really get anywhere without information and without patriarchal power imbalances that are covered up being uncovered and somebody going, look, it's still happening, look, it's still happening, look, it's still happening. Nothing gets fixed without that. Cambridge Analytica now is no more. And we're going to hear a lot more about Windrush and the extraordinary things that have happened, but nothing would be happening with Windrush if it wasn't for The Guardian. So the question is, what are... We prepared to pay for this. And I mean us in this room, and I mean us, all the listeners around the world listening. Because if not us, who? Who are these people who care so much if it's not us? So the question is, what can we afford to pay? And for some of us, some people listening may say, genuinely, I can't afford anything. And that's okay, because we're socialists and we'll chip in for you. So if you can afford one pound a week, just go, mm. If you could afford five pounds a week if you had one latte less, just go, mm. <laughs> just go, mm. If you could cut one latte, if you make one coffee at home and take it in one morning, just five pounds a week? Two mornings. <laughs> Two mornings. You, and you start to think, I like my own coffee, actually. Now, this is really good. And I'm getting fewer caffeine headaches. Ten pounds a, ten pounds a week if you could afford that? Just go, mm. Okay, you're not going to get £10 a week out of hardly anybody, but can you see, Catherine, I've tried. Now, um, but lots of people said one and lots of people said five. And I think for this kind of information, £1 a week, that we're all funding, and we have to think about funding women to go out and find out what patriarchal forces are doing to make the world less fair. That's what we're paying for. And we buy a lot of crap. We have to remember that. Think of everything you've bought this year, and some of it, you don't even know where it is. It's, it's, in a, it's under a big pile of clothes in the corner of your bedroom. You bought a stupid hat for a costume. You're about to go to do Halloween. You're going to buy glitter. It's bad for the environment. You're going to buy ridiculous things off Amazon and give money to bad tax evaders. What if you committed to £1 a week or £5 a week to fight patriarchal forces like a superhero? So you could give it to The Guardian, or if you're listening internationally, The Guardian is international now, it's they everywhere. have 160 million browsers around the world, 160 yes. million browsers yes, around the world. that's a lot okay, of people. Okay, so we're all going to be putting in a pound a week. Yeah. Um, you want to be in the black. do it, actually, that would be fine. That would be fun. That would do it. Um, is there anywhere else that you could recommend people put money into that isn't The Guardian? Well, not many people have our model. Um, so no, only the Guardian. <laughs> but let me t- I'll tell you only why. Only t- the Guardian. I tell you, I mean, I think there's a particular thing about the Guardian's ownership model. We don't have a proprietor, which means there's no individual telling us politically what to write, and we don't have shareholders. So there's nobody trying to get rich out of the Guardian, which is lucky, obviously. Um, no. but, but we don't have shareholders. <laughs> 
So what that means is that the contract that I have actually is that the money can only go to journalism. You know, if we were to make any profits, it has to go to journalism. And so I think I would like to recommend other news organizations around the world that have that arrangement, but there are very, very few. Most of them have proprietors who buy a newspaper for political influence or have shareholders who are trying to get rich. Okay, so really genuinely only The Guardian. I think it is just The Guardian. Um, but if, <laughs> is there anyone else you trust? Like, would you read The Washington Post? What else do you read? There's lots of great uh, news organisations all around the world who I would read, yes, okay. but I wouldn't give them money. Okay, all right. <laughs> you heard the scoop here first from Catherine Viner. Uh, but the only thing is, Catherine, I trust you, but what if you die and it's taken over by an evil man? <laughs> I mean, I don't want that to happen. Um, I, I trust the Scott Trust that owns The Guardian not okay. to choose an evil right. man to replace me in that circumstance. Right. Thank so, you, Deborah. So... <laughs> So, I've only done it for three and a half years. It's, you know, you've got yeah, to yeah. No, no, I'm saying, but you've turned it around. You've got it into the black and the, these big stories that it's broken. I know The Guardian's always been great, but I think it has had a new lease of life under you. So I, I'm just aware that someone might kill you. So, um, <laughs> the same. They won't, they won't, you're safe here. You're safe here. Although this would be a good place for snipers, but that's not, <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Please give money to The Guardian. If for any reason you don't give money to The Guardian, please buy a reputable newspaper that is breaking stories and doing genuine investigative journalism wherever you're living around the world. Do we have a commitment here, even if it was only one pound a month from some people, that everyone's going to regularly give something to The Guardian? Just give us a cheer if you were committed to that. Okay. I want you to do it in the interval tonight while you're a bit drunk. I do not trust you tomorrow. All right. So now it's time uh, to bring on our guest co-host for this segment. Our guest co-host is Yasmin Abdelmajid. Yasmin is a writer, engineer, and co-founder of an Instagram-based news company, This Much I Know. Reputable. Oh, thanks. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Um, essentially, we amplify the work that's already being done. So the number of people that check the like, mainstream news actively by themselves has decreased significantly over the past couple of years, and the trust that people have generally... The Guardian's actually a good example of one that people still do trust, but generally people don't trust news. Um, so we're trying to work to get like, news into your Instagram feed every day through stories and feeds. So, yeah, great. that's the vibe. Our other guests are The Guardian reporter investigating the Windrush story for 10 months. It's Amelia Gentleman. And, uh, And with her, a healthcare worker from North London who arrived in the UK from Barbados in 1963 and is herself affected by Windrush. It's Judy Griffiths! Hello, Amelia, and hello, Judy. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi. Hi. Hello. So, Amelia, um, you've done something extraordinary in breaking Windrush. How did this come about? Could you give us a little beginner's guide to Windrush? Because there may be some people listening globally who don't know about Windrush, or even maybe some people in the UK who they're hearing a lot about it, but they're not quite sure of all the details. Could you give us a little introduction to Windrush? Sure. 
So this is a, a story that I've been looking at since last November. I was contacted last November by a small charity who said they were really worried about one of their clients who'd been taken to Yarlswood. Yarlswood is a really notorious detention centre for women. And what was worrying particularly about this case was that the person in question, Paulette Wilson, was 62, had lived in Britain for the past 50 years, having arrived in the UK from Jamaica as a nine or 10-year-old. And they contacted me, this charity, to say that we needed to write about her because she was on the point of being deported back to Jamaica, a country she hadn't visited in the past half century. So we published a story about her, and as a result of that, slowly, over a number of weeks, lots of other people got in touch to say, it's amazing to see what happened to her, the same thing has happened to me. So the day after I, I, um, we published that story, we, I met somebody who'd been in detention for five weeks, having also spent his entire life in the UK, having arrived from Jamaica as a 10-year-old. The kinds of problems that they were facing were threat of deportation or they were being told that they didn't have the right to work in the UK, even though they'd lived here all their lives, paid taxes for 40 years. Um, some people were made homeless because they were told that they weren't eligible for council housing. Other people were told that they weren't allowed to claim benefits and weren't allowed to travel. So very, very slowly, we published stories week after week, hoping that there would be some kind of political response and some kind of policy change. But it was really, really long in coming. And they just didn't respond. Every time you publish a story like that, you have to go to the Home Office for some kind of comment. And the comments that they gave were fairly anodyne, mm. just saying... I've had some dealings with the Home Office that I mentioned before. <laughs> um, and... It is absolutely extraordinary sometimes, the things that they'll say. And in my case, whimsically, I was not deported because I was a comedian. And I thought, thank God I wasn't something useful like a social worker or a doctor. Um, <laughs> thank God I was a narcissist comedian. And <laughs> that seemed to excite the lady that day. She was really nice, but she just was like, it, it is so whimsical. But in the case of the Windrush generation, these were people who were invited here uh, from Caribbean countries at a time when uh, the UK needed a stronger workforce, and at the time when, if you were in one of those Caribbean countries, you were automatically a British citizen anyway. And so these were British citizens specifically invited to relocate their lives and told there'd be opportunity here. And they and their children got on the boats. The first one was called the Empire Windrush, and this is why it's called the Windrush Generation. So all of these people arrived here, mm. suddenly found themselves without passports, and then it's prove when you arrived, prove uh, you haven't left for longer than two years, as was said to me, prove X, Y, and Z, and they couldn't prove it. And then there was this scandal with the landing cards being destroyed in 2010, isn't that right? Yeah, so the difficulty of proving that you arrived in the UK before 1973, which is really the cutoff point, was made much, much harder because um, the Home Office decided itself to destroy a whole storeroom full of landing cards of people who've arrived from the Commonwealth. And who was Home Secretary when those were destroyed? You <laughs> may be able to guess. <laughs> well, it was, um, it was at the end of um, 2010 when they were destroyed and Theresa May was Home Secretary. Oh. 
do you think they were nefariously destroyed? Because I read in one of your articles that someone on the inside said, I think they were just destroyed because we just didn't have enough space for them, but we were saying, no, we should keep them. Do you think that it was deliberate? Do you think it was an evil Mr. Bernstein plot? I think it was unbelievably stupid. I think warnings were made by the people who were at the coalface processing these claims, and they were very, very explicit. They said, we need these records in order to verify the claims of people who've been coming forward saying that they need to get passports. So it was a really, really terrible mistake. I'm not sure it was deliberate. Judy, tell us about you. When did you come here? Um, I arrived in the UK in 1963. I was eight years old and I had my ninth birthday here. You've been here the whole time? Yeah. Sorry, um, I, don't, I sound like I'm from the Home Office now. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Can you prove you haven't left for any two-year period? <laughs> yes, I can, and I did. <laughs> yeah, I came in 1963. Um, I was made redundant from my job, and obviously I went to secure another job. I secured three jobs, and in securing those three jobs, I couldn't take up any of them because I didn't have a British passport, and I didn't have this and that and the other, all these different papers they were asking me for, but I didn't have them. And I couldn't then prove that I had the right to live and work in this country. And so what happened? What happened was I had to go into hiding because the next thing I knew, I heard about this lady, Paulette, and what they were doing, deporting and, you know, all this kind of thing. So I started to sort of, put feelers out like to my MP and various people to see what they knew about it. I wrote to the Home Office myself. That was even back in 2005 because what actually happened, the Post Office had lost my passport that had my indefinite stamp of leave in it. So then I started writing to them from then, but I never ever received an answer back from anyone. Then I got um, speaking to Mr. Corbyn, he's my MP, and he? he, yes, he is. And he's quite a nice man. And he was quite helpful. He wrote quite a lot of letters backwards and forwards, and they kept telling him one thing and this and the other. Basically, they couldn't find me on the system. I thought the system meant the latest computerized whatever. And I pointed out to them, well, I would not be on the system because there was no such thing as computers when I came here. Mm. So, couldn't be on the system. But then, they use that as their main excuse, for want of a better word. Do you know, Judy, though, I came in the 90s and they said it wasn't computerised. They told mm. me they'd lost all of the records when I went up to Sheffield. Mm. They said, oh, we lost all of the records. And uh, they said, for a while, we lost a part of the Home Office. I said, I know, I remember. Mm. Um, so I wasn't computerised in the 90s. And it's amazing. The closer you get to the top the more you realise that I, just there can't be conspiracies because people aren't even competent enough to do their basic job, much less a conspiracy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it, it, beggars, so it beggars belief, really and truly. How can you lose records? Mm. I mean, the British Library keeps records, the British Museum keeps <laughs> Very records. Very well. Everybody else's records. How can they... <laughs> Yeah. The British Museum is a great record of everything the British have stolen. Mm -hmm. um, but they're not as good as... Everything in the British Museum has an indefinite right to remain. <laughs> but the people that own them don't. That is irony. That's true. Yeah. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? 
and some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's interesting that a lot of the Windrush generation didn't see themselves as immigrants. No, we're not immigrants. How can we see ourselves as immigrants when we were told... We didn't ask, we were told that we were British from day one. In Barbados, you could not say a bad word about England or Great Britain. You know, that would be almost like be asking to be crucified, really and truly, because the country was so idolised. Everything was British, everything had to be British. My God, if you got a pair of knickers from England and it was from Marks and Spencers, <laughs> the, whole, the whole of your village knew you had the spare knickers. It wasn't worn. It wasn't worn. I mean, for instance, my grand, she got a, a fur hat, you know, those white, nice fur hats one of her daughters had sent her from here. And the whole village turns out to see this hat because, because the Queen had worn one like it and it was, oh my God, you know, this is Britain, everything was Britain. So I can't understand how in one instance people like Enoch Powell could be in Barbados showing film shows, you know, telling everyone how great it is here, come here, you're going to have a wonderful life. That's they went, went, It was like a driving movie. You know the driving movies yeah. they have in America? He went down there, they set it up on the pasture, somewhere like Hampstead Heath. Set it all up up there. Everybody came from miles around. Before they even saw, oh, we're going to England, we're going to England. It was manic. People didn't eat, they didn't sleep. They didn't, you know, people forgot to wash everything. It was all about, <laughs> we're going to England. And, you know, it was telling them what lovely life they were going to have here and how much they were needed and how much they would be appreciated. And they all came expecting that. And what they got was the same Enoch Pyle telling them about how it's too many of them coming now, so the streets are going to be running with blood. What kind of stupidness is that? Mm -hmm. You know, it's just ridiculous. It's interesting what you say, because I am an immigrant, so I think of the time when I came here. But you're right, you weren't an immigrant, because if you lived in Jamaica, you were British yeah. already. Yeah. And then you were invited to basically come to another part of Britain. Mm -hmm. And so now the government trying to take that away mm. is very tragic. And it feels like even 
people who are on the other side of the political divide from us are horrified by it. They did a bit of an apology, didn't they? Amber Rudd resigned and said, oh, this is terrible. And we thought everything's going to be reversed. And they said, yes, everyone's going to get a British passport who's part of the Windrush generation. Very sorry. But that has not come about, has it? Well, we've had so many apologies. Amber Rudd has apologised many times and resigned. Theresa May apologised six times in a week. We've got a new Home Secretary who's still apologising. Um, they've they've re- <laughs> <laughs> they've, um, they've rebranded the hostile environment as the compliant environment. They've said, we, oh, we, wow. we're done with the hostile environment. We want a new, more sensitive, sympathetic Home Office. But the problem is that they haven't repealed any of the legislation that created the hostile environment. So for the moment, it's still an incredibly superficial change. But the more problematic thing is that the process of getting citizenship, which was promised and which everybody said would be very straightforward, is actually proving to be very difficult for some people. They have given citizenship to 2,000 people and another 2,000 people are on the way to getting it. So there is some really, really palpable good stuff to have come out of this. But for a lot of people who are still waiting for compensation, still in really, really difficult financial situations, it's just not happening quickly enough. Are you saying, Judy, you're one of those? Please, please, oh, please. (laughs) I I can't even think about going down that road. First and foremost... Mrs. May, she only apologised because the heads of state of all those Caribbean islands were here at the time. She had to (laughs) apologise. Furthermore, as we're going into Brexit, whatever that may be, because I still don't know what that is yet. I don't think you're the only one, Judy. (laughs) As, As we're going into Brexit, You have to understand this woman has to think, well, I might need these people yet again Mm. to trade with and what's not. So, of course, she apologised. As for Amber Rudd, I just felt sorry for her. Um, (laughs) The compensation, they capped it. They've already capped it. Previous to that, they said that they had paused the policy. I cannot understand. What do they think it is a video game? You know, you can't pause a policy and nobody knows anything about the pause. Because when you're going to get stuff and access services, you're still being asked for all these IDs and this, that, that, and the other. And if you haven't got it, you're not going to get that service. But so therefore, all the the new immigration officers, like those at the social security, those in the hospitals, those in the banks, all these are now immigration officers because they ask you for ID when you go to access stuff from them. And they don't know about the pause. I just wanted to make a comment about what uh, Amelia said about there being, you know, over 4,000 victims. Because when we did the first interview with Paulette Wilson last November, Paulette thought she was the only one and we thought she was the only one. And it was through that telling those stories in The Guardian that it, more and more people came out and that now there's at least 4,000 victims. I'm curious as to what you think, Amelia, and maybe Catherine as well, it took The Guardian sort of reporting for months and months and months for anything to happen because it had been happening. People had been being deported. Was it just sort of going after it for so long that made anything happen or...? It was embarrassment. They became embarrassed. 
But it's especially not as if people... after David Lammy did mm. his speech in Parliament, they became very embarrassed because it wasn't just now confined to this country; it went worldwide. Everyone in the Caribbean knows what happens. People mm. in America knows what happens, especially people and their families know what happened. And it doesn't look good. It does not look good, you know, for Britain to have acted and behaved in that way towards people who actually came and offered them services, you know, who helped them. But for me, I think that is one of the really, really difficult questions about all of this is for five years, maybe for 10 years, mm. some really, really bad things were happening to a lot of people. Yeah, yeah 4,000, possibly 8,000 people. Yeah. People were losing their jobs, having real difficulties getting access to services that they should have been getting. And yet nobody was making noise about it. It was surprising how long it took. I mean, Yeah, and, and politicians for a long time didn't pick up on it, and it was yeah. very frustrating. And our theory is, is that, you know, the mood, particularly among politicians, have become so anti-immigration, they were mm-hmm. so afraid of it with the Brexit referendum results and so on. And one of the things I love about the furore that surrounded our expose, I think it proved that British people aren't as racist as the politicians take them to be. Mm. It's not even so much about racist, ra- racist or racism. You know, everyone here has to realise, people have to understand, unless it affects you, you don't really understand it. If you stop a man from being able to access banks, that's his money. You stop him from being able to work, that's his money. Now he can't get nowhere to live. So what is he supposed to do? Sleep out in the rain, snow, whatever is coming down from the heavens, yeah? He can't get help if he's sick. What are you saying to that person? Really, go and die somewhere out of my face. That's what you're telling that person because how else are they supposed to live or care for their families or do anything? And even if they've decided, for instance, okay, then I'll go back to wherever I come from, how do they start to go back then? They can't bank, they can't get money, they can't work, they can't... How do they start to to go back to where they come from then? Yeah, we do need to help and make sure that not only are there six apologies a week but that everybody is given proper papers. We need to address this. And what collectively can we do? Because Guilty Feminists, we love to leave the house. We love to help. (laughs) We love to get on board and we love to change the world. How can we help? We can help by pressuring these people now to pay up. Pay the compensation that you stood in front of the world and promised. Stop trying to do delays. Stop trying to... They've come back and given us a consultation booklet I should just not say booklet. It's A4. The size of it is A4. It's a book. <laughs> not it's a even a booklet. <laughs> it's a magazine. It's like a magazine. Yeah? And in this thing, is so many questions you have to answer. Do you think this one should get compensation? Under what rule do you think this should get... You know, all these questions, they're now asking the people who they wronged. You know, in other words, set up your own thing and we delay as long as possible so we can give you the least possible and hopefully you get desperate enough that you'll take whatever we offer you. All those kind of tactics. We are not stupid. We are aware of what they're doing. All this review, lessons learned, all of that, it's all rubbish. Nobody, you're not going to learn no lesson because many things have happened in this country for you to learn lessons from, you didn't choose to learn no lessons, you ain't going to learn none from this. Just give us the money so we can get our lives back together. That's what I want. We, um, that was the most honest answer I've ever heard on a panel. Um, we've got to finish the panel up now, but 
Amelia, is there a place at The Guardian where we can go to click a link to sign a petition or to write a letter to our MP? Um, I think that you'd probably find that on David Lammy's website, rather. David, we, you know, we great, do the okay. reporting and then other people take it forward. But Super, thank yeah. you. So go to David Lammy's website. I hope he's got um, some, You can get something up quickly. But also, I'm sure if you Google <laughs> David Lammy, get somebody text David Lammy and tell him to get something up. Someone must know him in this size audience. And there will be petitions as well. Google it, take responsibility for it, write to your own MP and say this is important. We need to get Judy Griffith's compensation and many more like her. But if you could drop Judy's name in, because I think she deserves extra. (laughs) Thank you. Amelia, thank you so much for working so hard on this story. I imagine it's quite an emotionally draining story to work on and you've worked really hard on exposing this please keep investigating please keep bringing these yes. truths to the fore we've promised to back you financially we'll pay Catherine <laughs> Catherine can pay you yeah. to go out and be our Robert Redford for the Windrush yeah. generation and Ford Yasmin Abdelmajid keep on endorsing reinforcing through this much I know finding out what's true and endorsing that on Instagram And Catherine, please, please, please don't leave The Guardian. (laughs) Stay safe and (laughs) keep We can organise security. We've got you. Yasmin will organise security. And please, please, please keep doing what you're doing. We desperately need you. We will back you. We will share your stories online and we will pay up. A big round of applause for Jenny Hello, Guilty Feminist. It's Deborah briefly interrupting your podcast listening to say a big, big thank you to everybody who supported Say My Name, My Movie by coming in either Liverpool to the film festival or to the Cardiff International Film Festival. And some of you travelled to come and see it and hashtagged about it. And I'm so, so grateful. I'm coming back to Cardiff on November the 17th to the International Film Festival of Wales. And Say My Name, my movie, will be screened there and I will be there and I'll be doing a Q&A afterwards. So please feel free to come and meet me. I'll do a meet and greet afterwards and I'll sign your books. I was so sorry not to be able to come to the Liverpool Irish Festival. That was really, really heartbreaking. But I had to go to Cardiff because the movie's in a time now where it might get distribution so everyone can see it. Thank you so much for everyone for being so supportive. I'm sorry if anyone was disappointed I wasn't there, but I know that Kima and Alison did a wonderful, wonderful job. We have some upcoming shows that I'd like to tell you about. On the 3rd of December and the 17th of December, we are at the Lyric Theatre Hammersmith and those shows have gone on sale. On the 27th of November, we will be at the Coliseum. Yes, that's right. Home of the English National Opera. Very exciting. For a late night show, I believe that's about to go on sale very, very soon. Rachel Paris and I will be doing an episode about women in classical music. In addition, please go to the helprefugees.org website and see what they need this week. Conditions in Calais are getting colder, wetter, and because of the French authorities, more brutal. So if you could do some kind of 
roundup of coats and blankets in your area, sleeping bags, tents that people used once in Glastonbury and are just cluttering up the place that they'd like to get rid of and drop them at one of the help refugees drop off points. That would be so much appreciated. If you can go out there for a weekend and help RCK cook some meals or help refugees fold some warm clothes, then it would be so, so, so appreciated. And if you could go out for longer, you can go out for three or four days, you can go out on distribution and meet some refugees and distribute the food and the clothes yourself. So please find out through the helprefugees.org website what you can do to help, even if it's to just donate a fiver. Winter is upon us. In addition, Christmas is coming up. And if you'd like a good idea for a present, the Guilty Feminist book is out now. And it's a great way to support the podcast because we don't sell advertising, ask for money through Patreon. We only have Tom and me behind the scenes running it. And we're trying to keep it going all year round, including Christmas for the foreseeable future. Uh, So please grab a copy of the hardback if you can to support the podcast. And if you're coming to one of the live events, I'll try and come out afterwards and sign your copy for you. Also, Steve Alley's Jewelry has a guilty feminist collection. If you go to road-from-damascus.co.uk, he exports all over the world. So order off his website. There are necklaces that say guilty feminist and necklaces that say woman in Arabic. And they're beautiful and they're in silver and there'll be more pieces in the collection soon. So keep an eye out. And finally, if you would like to find out how to help the Windrush generation and be an ally of practical support, go to the show notes where we've provided some links. Thank you and back to the podcast. Our next act is an extraordinary stand-up comedian. Put your hands together and make extraordinary noises for the wonderful Dana Alexander! Wow, there's a lot of uh, white people to talk to the Windrush about, eh? (laughs) This is amazing. I'm glad that you care. I am an immigrant. Yes. It's my favorite thing to say to white people in England (laughs) post-Brexit. Not tonight, but usually they get fucking quiet. (laughs) Right? And you feel like as an immigrant in this country, like you got to confess some shit, right? Like, you know why we came here to make your high street smell like curry. (laughs) To put fruits and vegetables in your shops that you can't recognize. (laughs) But most of all, to give you brown grandchildren. What? (laughs) Yes. That's so exciting. That joke usually does not work north of Birmingham. Yes, I am an immigrant. I'm a Canadian, though. Yes, that's probably the least exciting type of black person that you can be. (laughs) We live next to some very, very exciting black people, the black Americans, right? I feel like we share a lot of culture with them. I feel like the only thing that really differentiates black Canadians from black Americans is basically I can skate. (laughs) Swim. And sound white on the phone. I do love it, though. People always question me where I'm from. Basically, everybody here thinks I'm an American, and then they treat me like shit. (laughs) Are you from America? (laughs) I'm like, no, I'm from Canada. They're like, this is a shit America, though, innit? (laughs) 
Are you from America? What are you doing over reading? Taking the British jobs. <laughs> right, I'm supposed to worry about the British jobs. You know what I'm gonna start worrying about British jobs? When I see a white toilet attendant, that's when the <laughs> But yes, the history uh, of, I'm, I'm Jamaican heritage, the history runs very deep. I don't know if you guys know this, my last name is Scottish. Alexander, I didn't know this until I went to Scotland, right? Aye, that's a very Scottish last name you got there. How'd you get that? I'm like, slavery. <laughs> yeah. You're so forgetful. <laughs> oh my God, though. It is nice to kind of uh, get to be around. I gotta say, my, my grandfather is Windrush generation. He came to Britain in 1957, but he was smart enough to immigrate to Canada in 1965. <laughs> It's amazing. Basically, I'd like to say that he was like forward thinking, but he got a white chick knocked up. <laughs> Everybody sees like the wind rush, like uh, the picture of my grandmother and my grandfather, a six foot seven man with a five foot three woman. That bothers me at my height. You ever see like a short woman with a really tall man? You're like, get off of him. <laughs> like she, she, but you know, like, and everyone's like, oh, what a beautiful story of love. But I know their wedding date, and I know when my mother was born. <laughs> she was heavily pregnant in her wedding photo, and in a blazer. <laughs> How serious can you be about it, right? <laughs> but yes, my grandfather came to the UK as a uh, mechanical engineer in 1957. They were actively looking for black people to come to Britain. That's how you know they ran out of Irish people. You know what I mean? <laughs> you ran out. Oh my God, yes. And when he came here, oh, was it not, like, it was not, I'm not gonna say that was like the most difficult thing that has ever happened to him. You know, it was a, he was able to move on to Canada and things like that. But this whole idea that uh, he, this is what I find very interesting about the whole Windrush thing, right? We're gonna offer people jobs that no one can fill, right? And then 60 years later, we're gonna pretend that you stole them and burn your fucking landing cards. I know, this can't be funny the whole time. It's not always a good time. But it's nice to actually get around. Uh, it's nice to be able to actually travel. That is the one good thing about Britain, getting to go to all the different countries. Yes, Canadian, woo woo. I gotta love it though, British people. You guys, look how many of you guys are out on a Wednesday. <laughs> and you know why that is? Cause there's fuck all on television. Right? I get very excited when I go back to Canada, seeing all the television I grew up with. There was a couple of new commercials though. Has anybody here ever seen the Because I'm a Girl commercial? About the impoverished women, right? Living around the world, right? Because I'm a girl, I may not have the opportunity to go to school. Because I'm a girl, I may earn 50% less than my male counterparts. But you notice nobody ever tells you the positive sides of being a girl, right? My commercial, like, because I'm a girl, this drink was free, what? <laughs> Because I'm a girl, I don't have to carry this heavy shit up the stairs. <laughs> right? Because I'm a girl, first one in the lifeboat, I don't have to go to war! <laughs> 
took me a long time to get used to certain things. When I first came to this country, I'm not even joking when I tell you this, I was this close to going to a BNP barbecue. I didn't know what BNP stood for. I was just like, barbecue. I'm like, how many white nationalist groups do you do? BNP, EDL, UKIP. This is my favorite. Britain first. When the fuck was Britain last? (laughs) Please explain this to me. It's been a very difficult time right now, right? Because all of us are getting all of this information coming in on social media and all of that, right? We all have Facebook, or as I like to call it, cunt finder. So much information coming through on Facebook. I learned a lot of things about myself on Facebook. I learned that apparently I am a person of color. Does anybody here identify as a person of color? Oh, what what do you mean? I I can't get down with that. I'm like, are you people of no color? (laughs) How lazy can you be when it comes to labeling? Right? It's like you go into like a record shop, right? You got classical, jazz, hard rock, soft rock, and then in the corner, world music. (laughs) It's like, how did I end up in the bin with the samba guy? (laughs) Yes, this is all a result of colonialism, globalism, right? Your American cousins, aren't they always making you feel proud? You guys always feel like a little bit better than them but you're basically the same. (laughs) The difference is you have healthcare and education. They have sunshine and personal space. (laughs) It's true. It has been very difficult watching what's happening in America, right? We've all seen the Trump thing happen. Donald Trump, yes, my worst white mare has come true. At the very least, Americans, at least they are entertaining. I was very excited to see this in the last couple of years. Did you guys see when they made Little Orphan Annie black? (laughs) White people in America lost their minds. (laughs) If they could have a black Annie, why can't we have a white Roots? (laughs) Roots? The slavery movie? I'm like, wasn't a white Jesus enough for you? (laughs) Right? I'm black. I would love to see a white people version of Roots. (laughs) Could you imagine? Some little white guy running off a plantation. Not very fast, you know. (laughs) He's all like, excuse me, master. It's Massa. It's a very hot day outside. If we could just get an SPF, anything over a 25. <laughs> I love it. But it is a little bit much. We're learning so much about ourselves, right? So many people are getting busted for being racist, hey? In the America specifically, right? We've all seen Barbecue Becky. All these black people having the police called on them for doing simple things like barbecuing with charcoal. Right, little girl selling water, and I love it because everybody's that. The camera phone is the best thing to happen to black people since James Brown. <laughs> right, and every time somebody white gets caught being racist, they always have the same response: "That is not a reflection of who I am." I'm like, I have the video, girl. 
What are you even talking about? Right, lots of different words. Oh, this is my favorite one that's come up in the last little while. Race card, hey? Why is the race card only black, right? I'm looking for the card that will allow me to have five children by three women, get done for housing discrimination, go bankrupt four times, dodge the draft, have two public affairs, grab women by the pussy and still be the leader of the free world. Can someone please tell me what? What color card is that? That is the orange card. (laughs) Yes, it's nice though. We're learning a lot of new words, right? Everything's changing. My favorite word though, I love, you know what? Words are now being born from two different words. My favorite word of the year, caucasity. (laughs) Yeah, that's when you mix uh, audacity and Caucasian together. (laughs) Caucasity. What is caucasity, you ask? Invading a country and saying you discovered it. (laughs) Camping in the winter. (laughs) You guys have been absolutely fantastic. Take care and have a good night. We've got a fantastic second half lined up for you. Some amazing comedians, another wonderful panel. But to play us out to the interval, the spectacular, the extraordinary, the glamorous, the wonderful, the never-before-seen at The Guilty Feminist, Gato Chocolate! Hello, hi, hi there, hi, hello, good evening, hi, hi there, hello, hi there, hi, hello, good evening, hi, hello, hi. Ladies and genitalia, I would like you now to imagine an alternate universe where Sandy from Greece was a man, black, bearded, and dined solely on a diet mainly of KFC. Okay, okay, are you there? It doesn't matter because I'm about to take you there. And now, before we start, I'd just like to say, resist every urge you have have to sing along. Thank you. (laughs) Don't do it.
You have been listening to The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis-White, guest co-host Yasmin Abdel-Majid, and my very special guests, Dana Alexander, Catherine Viner, Amelia Gentleman, Judy Griffiths, and Legato Chocolat. Music was by Mark Hodge. The recording engineer was Chris Sharp. The producer was Tom Selinski for The Spontaneity Shop. Thanks to Michael, Sophie, and everyone at Guardian Live and the Barbican Centre, as well as all of you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes, visit guiltyfeminist.com.